So when I was in my early 20s, I thought that leadership was about control. Uh, Nobody taught me this. It just made sense to me. Like if you want to influence, have more influence, if you want to have power, if you want a life that flourishes, then if I wanted to achieve that, then I needed to control my relationships, my life. I needed to control everything. If I could just control everything, then I'd be happy. Then I'd be powerful. Then, or let's spiritualize this. If I could just control everything in my life, then I could change the world for Christ. Then something happened. I, I got married. And then I had kids. And then I started leading a church. And let's just say I quickly learned that I needed to revise my view of leadership. Um, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm married well. But I can't control that woman. <laughs> I mean, and if I did, if, in all honesty, if I did try to control her, our marriage would be terrible. Day one, I'm holding a little bitty baby. And I'll tell you what, you learn fast. If I try and control everything, I'm either going to destroy this kid or this kid's going to destroy me. And a church, well, I tried to control all of you, but then God gave me a biblical plague three years ago and almost killed me. So that's how that worked out. The more I tried to control everything and everyone, the more my life seemed to shrivel. The more I sought control, the more restless and frustrated I felt, the more I sought control, the less people around me flourished. So I'm, I'm really, really hesitant to talk about leadership in a sermon. And the reason is, it's like, not that leadership's not in the Bible, not that it's not important, it's so important, but leadership, um, when you say leadership in 2017 in America, it comes with all this cultural baggage, like two oversized bags and a carry-on and a laptop bag full of baggage baggage, you know what I mean? Like, it has all these ideas in our world of position, office, money, fame, cars, clothing, jewelry, control. So I've tried to avoid leadership, most part, in my sermons. But when you come to the life of Joseph, Joseph is almost unavoidable. I mean, Joseph is one of the world's greatest leaders, period, He's one of the greatest leaders in Scripture. At every stage of his life, he rises to the top until ultimately he becomes a world leader who literally saves the world. How about that? So, At the end of his life, he has position, he has money, he has an office, he has fame, he has the equivalent of cars, clothes, all of that. But if you study the text, specifically the text we're going to look at today in Genesis chapter 40 and 41. The story of Joseph is the story about how he becomes a great world leader. And we find in that story that what makes him a great world leader has nothing to do with position, office, money, fame, cars, clothes, control. In fact, uh, the very hinge of the story, one of my favorite, favorite verses, chapter 41, verse 16, the very hinge of the story, the very hinge of elevating him from from a lowly life to great world-class leadership is his confession, I cannot do it. I'm not in control here. Only when he confesses that he cannot save the world does God then decide to use him to save the world. (laughs) Only when he gives up control does God use him greatly. Do you see this? Do you see this? 
So maybe, maybe it's just me and my little OCD heart. But this is a story that I need to hear. I don't I could be wrong, but I think maybe there's a few of you who are control freaks out here and could perhaps use a little nudge in this direction too. As you look into this, our relationships in our workplace, in our finances, in our kids, there's so many things that we would love to control. And yet this text is going to be this big slap in the face. Um, the, the text specifically is going to be about, answer this question, how do we become what Joseph became, right? Or more generally, how do we prepare, how does God prepare a person for great leadership? But here's, here's the thing I want you to see. Whether you consider yourself a leader or not, the temptation to control things in your life, it's there. It's there, friends. It's there in your little heart. If you'll just pay attention. So watch this. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 40. If you have the text, I'd encourage you to turn there. Genesis chapter 40 and 41. We're, going to, we're going for it, guys. About a three-hour sermon. I got two chapters. All right? Hope you brought lunch. Uh, so let's set the context. I, I'm, I'm going to try and move quickly. We'll see how that goes. So over the past few weeks, here's what we've seen, right? We saw Joseph in chapter 37. He's this spoiled 17-year-old kid in Palestine. And then he moves forward in chapter 39. And we meet him. He's a household slave and a Chris Hemsworth doppelganger. And he's like living in this household as a slave, succeeding greatly, fighting off women. And then finally we see him. He's a prisoner. He's, he's a prisoner, but he, he's elevated even in the prison He's blessing people. He becomes a prison warden, basically, as a prisoner. At each turn in the text, we see that he believed God. He believed God's dream for his life. He stood under suffering, humiliation, temptation. He stands. At each turn, he lives out Genesis 12. Blessed to be a blessing. At each turn, he blesses everyone around them. And now... This long, long time of preparation is coming to an end. And this is where we start in Genesis chapter 40, starting in verse 1. And it reads like this. Sometime later, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their master, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was angry with his two officials. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the same prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph, and he attended them. So here we meet the cupbearer and the baker, and these were important officials in the, uh, in the king's household here. So I want you to think about this. The, these two guys were exceedingly close to Pharaoh. So one guy is deciding what wine he drinks, and the other guy is deciding what he eats. And if you, um, if you know anything about ancient Egyptian politics, you know that there are many, many dynasties, which means there were many, many coups. Lots and lots of people want to kill Pharaoh. So the guy who lots and lots of people want to put poison in his, um, in his Merlot or his muffin, right? So the cupbearer and, and the baker, these guys are important. These guys are guys that he has to trust with his life. Like if Pharaoh, if he doesn't trust them, there's a problem. And somehow the trust broke down. Somehow these guys both end up in prison under Joseph's care. Verse six then goes on. After, um, oh, it goes on. So they're in custody for some time. I, I skipped a part here. They're in custody sometime, and both of them on the same night have a dream. And then it says in verse 6 When Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw that they were dejected, like they're sad sitting in there. So he asked Pharaoh's officials who were in the, his custody with him in his master's house, 
Why do you look so sad today? We both had dreams, they answered, but there's no one to interpret them. And then Joseph said, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. And so first, you got the cupbearer, and he has this dream of these vines and these three different clusters of grapes. And he goes up and he takes a cup and he squeezes the, the juice into the, into the cup. And then he takes that and puts that cup into Pharaoh's hand. And, and uh, Joseph listens to that and he's like, easy. You saw three branches with these three things of grapes. Easy. This is three days. In three days, he says, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position, and you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand just as you used to when you were his cupbearer. So simple interpretation here, right? Now, there's a big question we could all ask here about dreams. There are a lot of questions we can ask. How does God use dreams? And I simply want to point out that the narrator doesn't care. Uh, God may or may not use dreams. He, it's his prerogative, but that's not the point of this text. The point is not the dream. The point is, is the interpreter of the dream, that God is using Joseph. That Joseph, who's a prisoner, he has no authority, no position in life, no, no place to really be used, is still God's elevating him. God is using him in spite of his position. No authority, no title, no power, no rights, no protection, but God is using him. Look at this. He's simultaneously... God's powerful instrument and a helpless victim. So watch this, verse 14. But when all goes well with you, you're going to go back to Pharaoh's side. When all goes well with you, cupbearer, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews. Even here, I have done nothing to deserve being put in dungeon. Like life, I've, I've done nothing to deserve this. I'm completely a victim. I'm helpless. I'm begging you, please. Well, the baker then completely ignores Joseph's story and says, hey, you got good news for the cupbearer. What's your news for me? He says, I had this dream. Let me tell you about my dream. There are three baskets of bread, and I was carrying them on my head. And then along came these birds, these birds, and they started picking off the bread. And Joseph was like, that's so easy. Three baskets means three days. And then he says, within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head. <laughs> yeah. And impale your body on a pole, and the birds will eat your flesh away. Yes, stinks to be the baker. So, so three days later, we get this scene then. This is all just set up to what God is doing in Joseph's life. Three days later, Pharaoh is there, and it's his birthday party. It says as much in the text. And we don't really know the stories, but you can kind of fill in somewhere between, like, pin the tail on the donkey and cutting the cake. He's like, let's play a game. Call it Lift the Head. Who wants to play? He's like, the cupbearer, let's get him and the baker. And they play the game, and, and if you win, you get lifted up into the highest position you've ever been in, and if you lose, your head gets lifted off your body. How fun. The cupbearer wins, the baker loses. All right? This is what we see, and it's just like Joseph said. But after that happens, the cupbearer has completely forgotten Joseph. It reads in verse 23, The chief cupbearer, however, now back in his position, elevated again, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. Which moves us now to the meat of the story. And this is all prepped. Lead us to this point. In chapter 41, we read this first verse. When two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. Now, Pharaoh's dream is essential. This is going to be the turning point in Joseph's life. 
that dream would fulfill his God-given dream. You see, Pharaoh's dream fulfills Joseph's dream. But before that dream, before we get to that dream, I want you to notice this phrase. It's a little phrase. You can pass over it easily. It says, when two full years had passed. So I want you to do some math here. When Joseph was captured and taken as a slave, how old was he? 17, 17, that's right. So he's, he was a kid, taken as a slave, and then later went into prison. So at the end of this chapter, when he's finally elevated out of all of that, he's 30 years old. So you do math, 30 minus 17, that's 13 years. Let that sink in. In our instant gratification, there's an app for that world. This is an impossibly long time to wait on God. I mean, our patience is tried when, like, Netflix doesn't instantly load. We're like, no! My Wi-Fi slow. My video is buffering. Dear Lord. (laughs) Can I just point out, biblically, um, so Moses was an octogenarian before God showed up to him. The brother was wearing, like, adult diapers and drinking insure before God told him his calling in life. God promised uh, King David, he anointed him as a king, as just a kid. You were going to be king. The throne is yours. And then you know how long he waited? 22 years and six months before he received the throne. The apostle Paul, he's, he's on the fast track though, right? He's a quick learner. Turns around, he converts, he's, he's thrown onto the ground and, and, and kicked off his horse, right? My Lord, my Lord, why are you kicking against goats? All of that. He, he turns around, he converts, he's ready to go take the gospel to the whole wide world. And you know what God says to him? Go, go to the desert and wait for three years before you do anything. And you can go through the list. It's not just these guys. It's Noah, Abraham, Daniel, Nehemiah, Isaiah, on and on. Almost every major biblical character you can find, you will find a significant period in their life where they just have to wait. The closer you look at scriptures, you might begin to think that the main theme of it, that this is a book mainly about waiting. What's this book about? It's about waiting. Waiting on God. God makes his people wait and wait and wait. So, so even today, who, who are we? What are we? We are a people who are waiting. Waiting for what? Waiting for the glorious return of Jesus to the earth. Waiting for thy kingdom to come, thy will to be done. Now, now he, he, God wants everything we do in life, even in the Old Testament, everything has a sense of anticipation, of waiting, of waiting, of waiting, that waiting is supposed to form our lives, which begs the question, why does God want us to wait so much? Why? Like, I don't like waiting. Um. One of my favorite little stories is about this guy, uh, James Garfield. He was president, but prior to being president, he was president of Hiram College, which is kind of northeastern Ohio. And, uh, and a father comes to him and says specifically, he's, he's president of the college. Father comes to him and asks him, is there some way that my son could, you know, speed up his coursework and graduate faster? And Garfield says, certainly. But it all depends on what you want to make of the boy. When God wants to make an oak tree, he takes 100 years. When he wants to make a squash, he only takes six weeks. 
Okay, I, I just got to share this. I actually hopped on Hiram's uh, college's website this, this week. Yeah, I like to fact check all my stuff. And you know what they have on their front page now? You know what they're advertising? You can now graduate in three years. I thought, irony of all irony. Like their, their statement should be making squashes for 500 years. I don't know. See, God is not content to make a squash. God wants to make you, to borrow a phrase from Isaiah, into an oak of righteousness. And that takes time. You, you don't have to be a Christian or even believe the Bible to know this. Um, this guy, Malcolm Gladwell, he's great. He wrote a book called Outliers uh, a number of years ago. And in it, he popularized the idea that it was in um, psychological research on the 10,000-hour rule. He goes through and he says that if you go to psychologists in the, in, with the uh, field of expertise in, in specifically on, uh, no, they're experts on expertise. Well, you get it? They do research on how do you become an expert. And you ask, how long do you have to work at something before you become an expert, a virtuo, virtuoso, among the best of the best in your field? How long does it take? He says... The consistent answer across num- a number of fields is that you need to have intensely practiced or apprenticed for at least 10,000 hours before you can reach that level, period. He goes on to say elite musicians, athletes, computer programmers, salespeople, surgeons all have this in common. 10,000 hours of intense practice before they become truly great. 10,000 hours. Even if you take the most extreme example, someone like Mozart, you'd say, yeah, Mozart, though, when he was just 20-something, he's writing these great things. He's like, yeah, yeah, but he practiced since he was 11. 11. It took him 11 years before he could write his first masterpiece. So how does God prepare Joseph for greatness? 13 years of intense practice as a slave and then a prisoner. There are no shortcuts to greatness. If you want to be like Joseph, it takes years. Years. So it says, when two full years have passed, Pharaoh had a dream. And this is the turning point. This is the dream. He was standing by the Nile. And when he went out by the river, uh, there came up seven cows, sleek and fat. And they grazed among the reeds. And after them, seven other cows, ugly and gaunt. Literally, it says evil, evil cows, uh, came up out of the Nile and stood beside those on the riverbank. Now, this, uh, just to, to picture this a little, um, this would be a common scene in ancient Egypt. There's a Nile River. Cows will go down into it to cool off and to avoid the bugs. But, but there's something more than just a common scene here. Um, you may remember that the Nile River was more than a river to the ancient Egyptians, it was actually the embodiment of a goddess, right? Hopi. So, so the Nile itself is considered a god, and it was a sacred place. And then the cows, you might remember, so after the ancient Egyptians, or Israelites spend 400 years in Egypt, when they leave, they finally take their exodus, they go out to the wilderness, and then Moses is taken way too long up on that mountain. What do they do? They get together and say, let's, let's make an idol right now to worship God. What did they make God look like? A cow. A golden cow. Some think it's this. There, there were two main gods, Hathor and, and 
Apis, who are the gods, ancient Egyptian gods that are embodied in cattle. The point is, is that when an ancient Egyptian heard, oh, I had this dream about cows coming out of the Nile, they don't just hear about cows coming out of the Nile. They hear something sacred, something pregnant with meaning. It's loaded in imagery. And then it says, and the cows that were ugly and gaunt, the evil cows, ate up the seven sleek fat cows, which just makes you wonder, what does that look like? <laughs> have you ever been licked by a cow? I grew up on a farm. Yes, I have. So, so like, you're just like, how could a cow eat? How is that even possible? Anyways, so that happened, and then Pharaoh woke up. You're like, that is just weird. And then he goes back to sleep, and it says, He fell asleep again and had a second dream. Seven heads of grain, healthy and good, were growing on a single stalk. And after them, seven other heads of grain sprouted, thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven healthy full heads, and the Pharaoh woke up. It had been a dream. In the morning... His mind was troubled, so he sent for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. So this, read this, all, all the scientists, experts at the Ivy League, he called up, you know, in, 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 all the major research centers, the thought leaders of his day. He called them all in and said, what do I do? Like, what is this dream about? Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. Fail. They can't answer it. Now, real question here, why can't they answer this? Why can't they interpret the dream? In just a minute, Joseph is going to interpret this for us. And I don't think I'm spoiling anything to say the seven lean cows were seven years of famine and the seven fat ones were seven years of abundance. That famine's coming, there's like seven years of abundance, seven years of lean. This is not a tricky interpretation. You do not have to be schooled in like Freudian dream analysis to make sense of this. Like this is pretty basic. So why, why could no one answer what seems to be just an obvious interpretation? And may I suggest this isn't original to me, but... The reason the wise men of Egypt couldn't see what was obvious is because it contradicted everything they thought they knew. You see, they thought they knew that Pharaoh was a god. They thought they knew that he controlled the Nile, he controlled the cattle, he controlled the crops. They thought they knew that he was powerful over everything. But in the dream, the dream contradicts that. The dream, Pharaoh's passive. The dream happens to him. He, he doesn't cause it. And then the things that happen, Pharaoh can't control. Famine's coming, and there's nothing he can do about it. These dreams don't fit into what they, their view of reality. Don't fit into what they know. Don't fit into the logic or wisdom of the world. And can we, can we just pause for a moment and see how the wisdom of the world and the revelation of God go together here or don't? Um, a few months ago, I read a book, and it was fascinating. Um, the guy tried to lay out, what he did is he took the Christian faith and he then tried to build it from the ground up based purely on reason. Like purely what he called axioms, logical premises that anyone could agree to based on science and logic. And these axioms then became the foundation of his belief system. And I, I thought, you know, at first I was like, there's something attractive to that. I see why he might want to start like that. And it sounds pretty good. It sounds awful smart. But then I started to ask some questions like, what happens 
if the revealed truth of God, something that God shares with us, doesn't fit our logic, our reason? What if Isaiah 55 is right, that, that God's ways really are so much higher than ours that, that we, they can't possibly fit together? Because, not because it's irrational, because it's super rational. That it's beyond what we can handle or stomach. So what if, for example, God's word clearly reveals that there's a difference between men and women and they have different roles? But that doesn't fit into our world's logic, does it? How, how do you fit that together? What if God's word clearly reveals clearly that those who reject Jesus Christ, who turn away from him, who walk away from him, that they will be separated from God eternally? What if the Bible clearly says that, but that goes against all popular consensus and understanding that all religions are equal? How do you fit that together? See, at the essence, Christianity cannot be kept within the bounds of reason. The world's wisdom can't contain it. One God existing in three persons doesn't make sense. An all-present, all-powerful God becoming a helpless babe is not reasonable. God breathing his very word into the scriptures. There is no scientific test to say, ah, there's this much, this much inspiration in this book. There's no scientific thing. There's no way to deduce it. There's no logical way to get there. The only way you can truly know God is if he reveals himself. We will never deduce it. We will never discover him on our own. He is beyond human reason. And this is the point. If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you see the apostle Paul says, he looks around his church and says, uh, the message of the cross, the gospel, is foolishness. And he looks around the church and says, where are the wise people? Not out here. Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the philosopher of the the age? He said, none of them show up at church. You know why? Because they're all so trapped in their way of viewing the world, of their own answers to life, that they can't hear the revealed word of God. It's not because the gospel's tricky or complex. It's not. It's oh so simple. But if it contradicts everything you believe about the world, you can't see it. You'll be blind. The reason people don't understand the gospel is not that it's complex. The reason they don't understand it is that it doesn't fit what they think about reality, about themselves. If you try to use the world's wisdom to make sense of scriptures, you will not be able to see the obvious truth of scriptures. So, nobody can make sense of Pharaoh's dreams. And then in verse 9 and following after this, Pharaoh's like, uh, what do I do? And the cupbearer comes to him and says, hey, I got an idea. I remember there was this Hebrew, this Hebrew, and that's a bad term there. There's this Hebrew guy in prison. He was able to interpret my dream. Sorry, I forgot that, but now seems like an appropriate time to bring that up. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it, but I've heard it said that you... um, that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And so here we go. This is the moment of his life. He's on the big stage for the first time ever. Joseph has spent 13 years waiting for this moment to launch into his leadership, waiting for this moment. The most powerful man in the world needs your help. You are in an awesome position of power. What do you say, Joseph, in his answer? I cannot do it. 
I'm not the tattoo type, but if I were, I would get this tattooed like in Hebrew right across my arm. Maybe right here. I don't have a good enough body for that. So right across my arm. I cannot. It feels good to say that. Say this with me. I cannot do it. Let's say that. I cannot do it. I cannot do it. So um, I don't want you to miss this. Joseph spent 13 years as a slave and a prisoner. God bringing him to this point. Don't lose. This cost him 13 years of his life to learn this lesson. So let's learn it through him and not on our own. Why is this such a big deal? Because after 13 years, Joseph knows what no one else in that world seems to know. We're not the ones in control. I cannot change the forces of nature. I cannot determine or even imagine the future. I cannot control the course of my own life. My life is utterly dependent upon God. I am not in control. I cannot do it. And that, we're going to see, like, that is the proverbial, like, oven clock, ding, Joseph's ready. When, when Joseph says that, when Joseph says, I cannot do it, he's ready for leadership, God says, at the highest level. He's ready to become one of the most powerful people in the entire world. He's ready to be used by God like few ever will be, ever. Do you hear that? When he comes to an end of himself and says, I am not in control, he's ready to fulfill God's promise to Abraham, Genesis 12, and bless not only his family, but the entire world. Some of you need to camp out right here. And frankly, you can stop listening to me after this section. You just need to hear this, and you need permission to say, I cannot do it. So I'm going to lead you in this now. I'm going to set you free. You ready? You cannot decide whether your family members trust Christ or not. You cannot control cancer, Lyme's disease, infertility, birth defects, and so many other health issues. You cannot change the weather, the economy, or the president. You cannot determine how your kids will turn out. And you cannot change your spouse. Say it with me. I cannot do it. What makes this so powerful is not that we are out of control, but that when we know that we're not in control, we're affirming God is. I cannot do it, Joseph replied, but God will. That gives me chills, those three words. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. And so Pharaoh recounts his dreams in great detail. And Joseph um, then is going to explain his two dreams to him. He says they're one message. And he says it this way. It is just as I said to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming through the land of Egypt. But seven years of famine will follow. Then all the abundance of Egypt will be forgotten. And the famine will ravage will ravage the land. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God and God will soon do it. So get this. Pharaoh, the God of Egypt, is sitting there and he just got told that there's a real God who decided to do something that there's nothing he can do about. 
God alone is in control. So, so when we think in terms of leadership, the first half of what we see in Joseph is this. I cannot do it. I cannot do it. The, the first, the foundation of Christian influence and leadership is that God alone is in control. It's not a ba- based on me. But there's a second half, and that's what we're going to see in verse 33 and following. It says this. Now, let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. Let's stop right there. In, in the next section there, Joseph is then, from this part down, he's going to outline, if you read on for the next however many verses, Joseph then proceeds to lay out what we would call a business plan, like a, a strategy. Based on these projections, we have divine projections now. Here's what I'm going to recommend. Here's your business plan for how to deal with this. I'll take care of your marketing and everything. It'll be great. (laughs) So I want you to get this. Get this. He just said, I cannot do it. God alone is sovereign. He's in control. All the forces I can't control. God alone is in control. Now let's get to work. God is utterly sovereign. Now let's do our part. We are completely dependent on God. Now let's get moving. Do, do you see that? Do you see this? That, that some people think that, oh, if to, to admit that God is all sovereign is to say that we can, we can somehow shirk our responsibility. But that's just foolishness. That is not in the scripture and that is not Christian leadership. That recognizing God's sovereignty does not allow us to shirk responsibility. Acknowledging that we're dependent does not mean we don't have to work. God is unstoppable. His plans are unstoppable, and we need to plan accordingly. God's will and his purposes are are set, and we need to get to work. So let's make this practical. Just because the scripture said God numbers our days, right? Because he says God numbers our days, does that mean I can like chain smoke camels and not wear a seatbelt? No! God decides our wealth. Read Proverbs. He decides how much wealth you get. So does that mean I don't have to invest for retirement? No. God, God alone can change someone's heart. God alone can change my spouse's heart. Does that mean I don't have to work on my marriage? No. Do you see there is this beautiful, beautiful thing of God's sovereignty is actually the foundation of Christian action. Knowing that God is in control, knowing that God has already decided things, knowing that God is on our side and he is undefeatable, knowing that God is moving forward, you and I are now free to engage, take risks, put ourselves out there because we have ultimate confidence not in ourselves. I cannot do it, but in him. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all of his officials. So Pharaoh asked them, can we find a man like this, one in whom is the Spirit of God? And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So so just like that, Joseph goes from the pit, he calls it, the dungeon to the palace. He goes from being a prisoner to the prime minister. Just like that, Joseph becomes one of the most powerful men in the world. He's equivalent to their prime minister. 
Pharaoh himself, you'll see in the, in the text following, gives him his signet ring, which is his mark of authority, a royal robe, a gold chain, a chariot, and a whole entourage of people who, who help represent that he represents Pharaoh. Like he gets all the stuff, all the stuff of leadership that you might think of, the title, the position, the car, the clothing, everything, the jewelry, the name. As prime minister of Egypt, Joseph uses his administrative and leadership skills to run a world relief program that would then bless Egypt and literally save the world. And as Joseph is now this savior of the world, riding around on his chariot, it says in verse 43, people shouted before him, make way, a brick. That's what it says. Because he, uh, because he put him in the charge of the whole land of Egypt. So he is now Pharaoh's representative. He is, he's the divine representative in the whole land. And he goes to the land. He's wearing his royal robes with his royal power and throne and ring and all of that. And he, as he rides to a brick, and, and, and they don't know what this word is. It's um, what you call a hopox legomena, which is it's only used once in all of scriptures. And so if you look at it and you go through the research, they think it's an Egyptian term, which would make sense. And if uh, in ancient Egyptian, a brick would mean bend the knee. So I want you to hear this, this image of what we just saw. Here's a man who was a servant who trusted God, who admitted he did not grasp for a power, but he trusted God alone for his power. God elevates him, turns him into a royalty so that every knee shall bow at his name. Literally, bend the knee, bow to him. Have you heard this story before? Have the same mindset as Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He didn't go after power. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, just like Joseph. And being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, therefore, he completely gave up all control, even of his own life. He actually died. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. A brick. And every tongue confess. That Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Joseph, Joseph, Joseph is pointing us to Christ. He's a picture. He is the servant who's humbled and God exalted that every knee would bow to Joseph. In his life and leadership, he's pointing us to the one true Savior. That Joseph, like Christ, did not use his authority and power for himself. He did not grasp for control, but he trusted God. And instead, instead, when God then elevates him, what does he use his position for? Not for himself, but he uses his position of authority to save as many people as he could. He devoted his whole life to saving as many people as he could. And how were people saved by Joseph? All they had to do was come to him and bow their knee. How were people saved by Jesus? Jesus does not use his authority and power and honor for himself. He uses it for us. All all you got to do is come to him and bend the knee. 
And when we do, we don't just find physical life, but we find life that is truly life. We find life that is beyond control. Life that is about love and not controlling others. We find life that's not about elevating ourselves, but about using our power and authority and money and time to bless others, just like Abraham, just like Joseph, just like Jesus. We are called to a life that declares, I cannot do it, but God will. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Joseph's example to us. God, I I pray for um, all of us here now that the things that we're clinging to, the things we're trying to control, the things that eat us up in anxiety or the things that we are working, working, working so hard to control, Lord, I pray that you would bring those to mind and just allow us the freedom to hand them over to you now. God, if there's anyone here with a burdened heart or with frustration or anger or restlessness because they can't control something, God, I pray that you would give them the faith to step out and confess what Joseph did. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.